Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here in the Nadal Valley today, just south of Keswick, and I'm talking to author, illustrator and our virtual guide for today's walk, Mark Richards, up in distant Geltsdale. Hello, Mark. Hello there, David. Wonderful to be back. We're together again in these strange times and we're continuing the format that we established last time, going on a, a virtual wander around these landscapes that we love and that we miss with somebody as passionate about the area as you and I are. Uh, also interspersing that with some field noise that I've recorded locally and uh, today it's some lambs, uh, some spring lambs and a, a bit of cuckoo. So... That's what we're doing. But tell us a little bit, Mark, about where we're going on our wander today and, and who our guest is. Well, our guest today is Professor Angus Winchester of the University of Lancaster. And he has a great affinity with Cumbria and the Pennines. He has studied it in great detail. So he has a grasp of many aspects of local history. His focus for today um, he will be in the Buttermere Valley. The Buttermere Valley, and he has a long history there. He grew up uh, just downstream from there, didn't he, in Lawton Vale? Yes, a beautiful area, an area that I've long admired and get pleasure every time I come over there. Winlatter Pass or over Newlands Halls, those great scenes before you there are spellbinding and have down the recent centuries been a great lure and represent the uh, romance of the Lake District. Of course, one of the great Lakeland sites at this time of year are the Rannadale Bluebells, aren't they, Mark? Oh, gosh. Uh, every year I seem to go there, there seem to be more. Rannadale is turning blue after being blood red, as we will discover later. Anyway, we had a little bit of fun, didn't we, Mark, over the past fortnight since our last broadcast. We asked our listeners on Facebook and Twitter about which walk they were dreaming of doing when lockdown ends. And we had loads of responses. People seem to love this. Oh, they did indeed. I, I got over 8,000 impressions on my Twitter account. So clearly uh, we touched on something very close to people's hearts. These fells mean a lot to people. Uh, we're going to split this up, aren't we? And you've got a, a few choice replies I'll follow on after you. Okay. Well, Andrew White, who's famous for his walks around Britain films, he wants to go up Mam Tor, <laughs> the Shivering Mountain. Uh, John Manning, editor of Lakeland Walker, as many of our listeners will know, he said, I'll go for a big circular walk, like Kent Near Horseshoe or something of that nature. Frances Bell, she, she wants to go up High Toe <laughs> uh, early in the morning. Uh, it might be after this dry weather. It should be drier than usual. Another one is John Gillam. He loves all sorts of hills, and he's going to go up Rinog Vac and Cleda in the Colic Dome near um, Trisfunneth. Another area not in our patch, but nonetheless, hills again. Uh, Gray O'Dwyer from Reading, he said, I'm going up Halls Fell on Blencathra, and then down to Scalestown and up Sharp Edge, and down by Bleasfell. And all being well, a call in for a pint in Threlkeld. Eve, she wants to go for Scorfell from Estelle. And there's a bit of a common theme on that front because Simon Lockyer, too, 
wants to go up pen from a brother of Keld. These people have taste, I think, Mark. They're picking my favourite walk as well. Any walk in that goes from Brother Ilkeld over Great Moss into Upper Estale gets my thumbs up as well. Yep, Brother Ilkeld National Trust Farm is the largest farm in the Lake District. Is it really? Right. Helen Allison, she said, I've only been discussing this today with my husband. She said, we decided it would be great end from Seathwaite. And Gary Sinclair from Carlisle, he'll go for something more local like Carrickfell and um, avoid the crowds. How about you? So avoiding the crowds dominates the list of replies I've got as well. We've got Andy North says, uh, be worth keeping a note of the top 10 and avoiding them for a while. <laughs> Phil Tining, one of your friends, Mark, who we did feature on Countryside a little while back, uh, he's also picking pen. Ah, oh, there you are. There's definitely a pen friend club there. I, I appreciate that. Uh, next up, Paul Sharkey. He's going for Sellside, Brand Street, Tarn Crag, all those fabulous Far Eastern fells. Mike Prince. I may eschew the high fells in favour of a remote valley or two until the fuss dies down. I favoured social distancing before the virus and plan on returning to it afterwards. Uh, man after my heart there. I know that you like to chat with people when you're out about mark but uh yes i'm i'm with mike here i quite like walking alone andrew foster somewhere in the borders or the southern uplands well away from the crowds jenny wally i've got three left to do to complete the 214 post my hip replacement trouble is they're all honey pots so she's uh, her final three great gable fleet with pike and haystacks mm. They'll be busy ones, won't they, Mark? Absolutely. Uh, she can sneak up round the sides. <laughs> Mike Rowbottom. I've been thinking about this. Well, dreaming about it. All depends on what the family wants to do. But if I'm on my own, it will be a wild camp and a couple of days walking in Upper Eskdale. So it's going to be very busy up there. If the family's coming, I'll probably go for something like Great Dodd from Matterdale. I believe you went up there yourself recently. I did, actually. I walked up there just last week, and I thought it was uh, a very fine way up. It didn't feel particularly Lakeland, I have to say. It felt far more Pennine, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting out the back there. Uh, final little one here. This is Chris Page, and he says, My first, the one I'm looking forward to more than anything about coming out of lockdown will be my favourite fell, any fell. And I think, yep. <laughs> I think he uh, sums up the thoughts of many of us with that, doesn't he? So thanks, Chris, and thanks to everybody who wrote in. We've got a load more, actually, that we'll read out next time round. But for now, we are going to transport ourselves in the mind's eye to Buttermere. And where exactly are we starting our walk, Mark? Oh, Cinderdale Common, quite close to the shores of Currentwater, just within eyesight vision of the Bluebells. It's a warm welcome to you, Angus. This is our second Zoom Country Stride 
uh, interview, conversation, uh, virtual walk, and uh, I'm a great admirer of your books and your learned research and your special knowledge of a particular corner of Cumbria, I would say. Could you tell me a little bit, Angus, about your connection with this place? Yes, I was actually brought up in Cockermouth and Lawton. I, I wasn't born there. Uh, we moved up when I was five. And it was one of those lucky accidents, really. My father was in the Forestry Commission. In those days, Forestry Commission people you were moved around. I think it was to stop them from going native. <laughs> I think he did go native a bit because he'd married a native of Cumbria. <laughs> my, my, my mother was a Cumbrian. Uh, and it just happened that he was posted to Cockermouth, which was where his father-in-law, my mother's father, uh, had been brought up. So in a way, we were going home. When I was about eight, my grandfather retired up to Lawton, back to his roots. And I'd already sort of, I think I must have already had a bit of an interest in history at that stage. And hearing him talking about the places of his childhood, all the, all the areas we knew so well, places we went for picnics and walks and so on, um, it somehow sort of filled the landscape with another dimension, a dimension of time. And uh, that got me really interested in the history of that particular area. And in a way, that's something I've sort of stuck with all my all my career because I developed that interest, first of all, uh, as a research student doing a PhD on medieval settlement in Cumbria. And, and from that went on through uh, an academic career in the university world with a, a central focus being on the history of the landscape of Cumbria. And in a way, when writing the language of the landscape, what I was trying to do in that book was to try to say, right, well, this is the place that started all off for me personally. This is a place I, I love, I've loved all my life. Uh, and I wanted to say something about what I knew about it in terms of its history and what its history meant to me. I can understand that. Uh, I remember when I was very young, I knew a man called Ken Robson, who was a family friend. And he was town clerk of uh, Cockermouth. And uh, he lived in High Lawton. He did. And he rode a horse. Yeah, I remember him. Every day, every morning. Did you know him? I remember him riding his horse around Lawton. When I was a teenager, yes. <laughs> well, there, there's a connection that you and I have, which is wonderful. Uh, and Ken was always fascinated in the, the local history. But the the story that we're more interested in is your interrelationship with that landscape, which uh, you've particularly made a specialism of, reflected in this book that is now available called the language of the landscape. I suppose the starting point is place, isn't it? And it's the relationship between place and history. Having grown up in a very particular local area and having sort of got my, through the family background, and got my feet, as it were, under the table with the, the, the time depth of, of, of places there, um, I began to get very interested in, in, in what makes places. And the, the title of the book, The Language of the Landscape, tries to sort of, well, it implies, doesn't it, that the language can speak to us. And really what the book tries to do is to look at how the landscape can speak to us. The fact that people have lived in the same place over many centuries, in a way, the place then brings those people closer to us. There's a wonderful quotation, which I use at the end of the book. It's by the great historian George Macaulay Trevelyan, who has an association with the valley because he, he actually bought the farm at Gatesgarth at the head of the valley in the 1930s. He was a great preserver of, of rural England. And in his autobiography, he talks about what he calls the poetry of history. And he says, the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, once on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all gone, one generation vanishing after another, gone as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghost at cock crow. And that sense that 
people in the past were living in these places which we know, so that if you were to walk to Buttermere or to, to, to Lowswater, uh, you know, if you see the, the gable end of Melbreck over the Kirkstyle Inn, um, or you see the haystacks around the head uh, of Buttermere, you're looking at places that would have looked actually very similar to people many hundreds of years ago. And in a sense, places rather than the past separating us from people, the time separating us from people, place in a way brings people closer to us. And that's a sort of fascination. People come to the Lake District and see it as a, a pretty place, mm. but actually it harbours human continuity. That's the thing. And I think, I mean, the landscape is a creation of individual decisions and, and hard labour over the centuries you know, everything we see in the landscape is that has been made by human beings is the result of some deliberate decision to do something with the landscape. And I think the other thing, that sense of sort of continuity is an important one because, of course, the Lake District is often thought of as a place of, of strong continuity, which is absolutely true. Um, and I think partly going back to my family background, I think I was lucky in that because of my grandfather's connection with the area, there were still living in the area several elderly people, elderly when I was a young boy and teenager, who, because of my interest in history, I would talk to them about the past. And there's a story that I tell in the book which really sort of brought home the, the time depth of the past to me. It was, it was a, a friend of the family who sort of made distant connection who lived on an old farm just outside Cockermouth. And I remember going to see her one day and we went through into the little sort of parlour and we were given tea in the little Victorian parlour. And she pointed out in the parlour the remains of one of those box beds that had been put into the back of the parlour. And you still see the mark where the timber had been on the ceiling. And she said that was where her grandfather was born. And her grandfather well, was born in 1819. And he lived to a great age, lived to about 1910, I think, when she was a, a young woman. And she, she could remember her grandfather's stories. And she told me in that room where he'd been born, with the remains of the box bed on the ceiling, how he told her about a great flood that had swept away uh, the bridge had come halfway up the, the orchard at their farm that took place in the 1820s. And I thought, you know, here I am in the 1960s with a direct link through just one intermediary to something that happened 140 years ago. Fabulous. And it's that sort of time depth that brings the past closer. Well, today's virtual walk, Angus, and it's one that you recommend based on the latter part of your book, and it's the journey from Ranadale through to Gatescarf, which takes in Squatbeck down to Buttermere, along the north shores by Hasness to Gatescarf. I'm sure many listeners will know that area so well, and it's very loved. Could you just give us a little bit of a feel for what that journey is? As you approach Ranadale, coming up the valley, you'll see one of the probably one of the best loved views in the Lake District. It's much photographed, much painted. That view when you're looking up Crummock Water, Ranadale not sticking out into Crummock Water and looking up to the other fells. It always reminds me, I mean, it's obviously a special place to me, but I remember a few years ago, um, I was part of a group that was involved in a project uh, looking actually at um, algal bloom on Lowswater and what could be done about algae on Lowswater. And we had a meeting in Lowswater Village Hall on a beautiful evening in May. And when we came out of the meeting, the sun had set but there was still this lovely pink glow on the fells. It was really quite breathtaking, and people sort of almost gasped as they came out of the hall. And obviously it was meant a lot to me because it's, it's just that, that wonderful place, as far as I'm concerned. But one of the local farmers I overheard saying to one of the uh, young researchers, I think somebody from Portugal, I think she was, um, saying to her, when you get to paradise, 
this is what it'll look like. <laughs> and I thought that's absolutely right. Absolutely. And it also made, I thought, I thought it was important because um, we often think that it's people from outside the lakes who appreciate the landscape. But of course, that's rubbish. I mean, the people who live in the lakes and have always have lived in the lakes also appreciate the landscape. And so the fact that it was one of the local farmers saying this seemed to me to be important. Well, in actuality, it's a gorgeous day, but we're doing a virtual walk and I'm in very good company with you, Angus, and I'm delighted to share strides with you as we head from Cinderdell Common near the shores of Crook Water with surround of wonderful rising fells, Grassmoor and Whiteless Pike and Ranadale Knots and across the lake, Melbreck and so on. It's, it's absolutely magical countryside, but we're heading into a fabulous valley loved by many thousands of people who come to the flock to the lakes, Ranadale. The valley is covered with bluebells at this time of year, stretching up onto the lower slopes of the fells. They're really what people come to see, aren't they now? But it's an interesting valley because once the bluebells are gone, or before the bluebells come, it's probably the best time to see it, but when the bracken has died down a bit but before the bluebells are through, um, there are the remains of uh, a deserted settlement of some type. When you go into the valley, right underneath the knots, it's quite a, a landmark, is a, a large crabapple tree, a big ancient crabapple tree. I, I know the one. It's the one big tree left, really, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, and around that crabapple tree uh, are the remains of tumbled walls. It's quite difficult to work out exactly what they are, but there are some buildings, there are small field walls and things, low walls. Uh, they look like the walls that tend to survive from the medieval period, so it's probably a medieval building. Uh, and it's probably a reminder of the history of that valley at an early date. Briefly, what we can sort of piece together for the history of that valley, well, again, the starting point is its place name, because the place name probably refers to how the valley was used at a very early date, probably around about the time of the Norman Conquest. Um, Ranadale originated, it's first recorded quite early in 1170 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is recorded is actually not the dale, it's not Ranadale, it's Rana House or Rana Halls. And that's referring to uh, where Ranadale not sticks out into Crummock and the Halls was the, the pass over the end of that crag where the road, before it was built out around the edge of the lake, uh, went up over the crag and down to Buttermere. So that was the Halls. Yes, I know. I've walked along that bit. It's slightly raised mouth. It comes down. Yes, I know. Yes, there's still a path, isn't there, that goes up over the, that, the old route. That was the Ranner Halls. Or the Ranner bit means the, the raven-haunted pasture ground, summer pasture, the raven shieling. And I think we can imagine that little triangle of green fields in front of Ranadale Knots. Uh, that would obviously be the attractive bit of land to settle. And I think we can imagine some sort of a shielding temporary summer settlement there where people would take the livestock over the summer months and then take them away again in the winter. And eventually, probably in, sometime in the 1200s, probably, or early 1300s, that shielding ground may well have become permanently settled, which is what was happening in other parts of the Lake District, and you'd get a permanent settlement uh, at that place. So... It very probably, there is a small medieval settlement at Ranadale in the, let's say, between about 1250 and through to about 1500. Right. By 1547, 
there was no settlement left. All the land at Ranadale was actually in shared ownership. It was shared by a number of farmers down the valley. Now, and here's me wanting to sort of link the two things together, because when you start looking at the documentary record of Ranadale, there's a fascinating story about a man called John Newcomb, John Newcomb, alias Jack, he's referred to in the records, Mm -hmm. who lived in Ranadale around about 1500. And he seems to have been a bit of a pain in the backside to his neighbours because he would enclose bits of the common, he wouldn't keep his hedges in good nick, he chases neighbours' animals and all this sort of thing. And he obviously was a bit of a lad. And it ended up, he actually killed somebody, a man called uh, Robert Thompson. He killed him with an iron fork, uh, hit him on the head with an iron fork at Ranadale Knots. He fled, and his family and all his accomplices fled. And I just wonder if that is the end of this old farmstead that's there underneath the, the spreading crabapple tree. Now, the other thing about Ranadale that rather intrigues me is this notion that it is some kind of a secret valley. Yes, this is a wonderful story, really, because the people who go to Ranadale nowadays, they come to see the bluebells, and they know of Ranadale largely because of the writing of one man. Uh, Nicholas Size, who wrote a little book in 1929 uh, called The Secret Valley. And it's a it's a complete bit of fiction, <laughs> but it pretends to be history. Uh, and it's a fiction, it's a fictional story of a, a Norse lord living in Buttermere, Earl Buthar, he calls him, who uh, sees off the Normans, probably sometime around about 1100. The story weaves in one or two historical characters, in particular Ranulf Le Meschin, who was the, the Norman lord of the northern part of Cumbria. Ranulf Le Meschin is said to have brought a force, an army, up the valley from Cockermouth, and Earl Berthard manages to divert them into Ranadale, where they're then cut to pieces by the Norse resistors, you see. So it's a wonderful story. But in the popular imagination, the bluebells are linked to the story that size concocted. So the bluebells are the efflorescence of the blood of the slain Normans. <laughs> and, uh, and I think they, they, people genuinely believe that story. They see it as part of the history of the valley, whereas, of course, it is purely fictional. Absolutely fabulous. He was creating an ambush story, enabling him to ambush his customers. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's about right, I think, yes. Now, this uh, size was uh, quite a character. Yes. I mean, Nicholas Size was an interesting man. He was known as Old Nick to his neighbours because I think they didn't get on with him very well. He was a Liverpudlian by birth and he came up to the lakes. He loved the lakes. And around about 1920, he bought what was then the then derelict Victoria Hotel at Buttermere, which is now the British Hotel. And he was had great plans. He wanted to turn Buttermere into an alpine resort. He wanted to have a chairlift up the fells. He, he wanted to have a, a, a huge big uh, depot for motor cars. He actually got as far, I think, as having a golf course, believe it or not, in Buttermere. Um, so he had great plans for turning Buttermere into a resort. And writing The Secret Valley was, I think, part of that whole scheme of things. Because he published it first as a little slim pamphlet, really, uh, which, and this is another part of his wonderful marketing skill, he had it published by Titus Wilson, the printer in Kendall. And he had it published so that it looked like the rather worthy publications of the Cumberland Westland Antiquarian and Archaeological Society. So he made it look like that. He also gave sort of wonderful pointers on the front of the book. Um, Truth is stranger than fiction, it said. (laughs) It also said, no good story is wholly true. Ah. So he's sort of, you know, teasing his his audience. Anyway, that was in 1929 he published it. The following year, he produced a second edition. And that second edition was published by a national publisher, uh, Frederick Warren, who, of course, was the publisher of Beatrix Potter's books. 
So it's published nationally. Um, he embellishes the story a little bit, and it's in the second edition that he tries to draw rather more the link between the Bluebells and the slain Normans. Um, and so I think it's probably the second edition rather than the first that sort of sets the scene and, and, and get, gets Ranadale well known. But then in the 1950s, the story's picked up again, this time by Rosemary Sutcliffe uh -huh. in one of her series of books aimed at the sort of teenage, young adult um, audience, um, where she retells Size's story, which of course is purely fictional, but she retells it. She makes the whole thing more Norse and she sort of weaves a love story in with it. Um, her story is actually rather better, I think, than Size's, if I'm honest. Uh, but it, but it's, uh, it's still the same story. It's still Size's uh, made-up history. And she also... Uh, in the front of her book, tries to sort of blur the history and the imagination by saying the only person you'll find in the history books here is Ranulph Lemeshan, the, ah. the, the Norman Lord of Cumberland. But these other people were equally true. They were equally historical figures. But knowledge of them survives only in local folklore or something like that. Now, that local folklore is basically Nicholas size. So you've got, first of all, a, I suppose a local publication very much seen as something to try to develop Buttermere into a tourist centre, gets built up into a national publication and then picked up by Rosemary Sutcliffe. And all those aspects of you know, entering popular fiction, as it were, uh, helps to generate this new story, completely ahistorical story of Ranadale, which is now so firmly fixed in people's minds. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, we ought to pop over that horse and uh, venture down into Buttermere uh, virtually. Our next move will be head that way. We come off the bridleway and it leads us naturally onto a road into the tiny community of Buttermere itself. And uh, we turn by the Bridge Hotel, Nicholas Sizes Hotel, and uh, we go down the street, past the cafe there now on the left, and we head towards the Fish Inn. And, well, we're in the midst of Buttermere now, Angus. Yes, and, and Buttermere itself, we've just been talking about the story attached to Ranadale, but there's, of course, Buttermere, a crude uh, story um, that became very much part of the place. Buttermere was one of the early places to be explored by the early tourists in the in the late 1700s, early 1800s. They would come over from Keswick, which of course Keswick and Derwentwater was the main centre of the early tourist industry. They come over Newlands Pass down to Buttermere, attracted particularly by Sawmill Gill and then Scale Force on the other side of the valley. And then in the 1790s, Buttermere became famous for the beauty of one of the barmaids, Mary Robinson. One of the early visitors, a man called uh, Captain Joseph Budworth, did a tour of the lakes in 1792, and he was absolutely smitten by the beauty of the teenage waitress, uh, Mary Robinson, and he included a really quite lyrical pen portrait of her in his description of the tour. Poor old Mary then became part of what you came to look at when you came to Buttermere. Um, and the story didn't end well, because... Uh, a few years later, her fame brought to Buttermere uh, an imposter, a man who called himself the Honourable Augustus Hope, but whose real name was John Hatfield. He was already married. He undertook what was then a, a capital offence of franking the, the male. He and Mary eventually married in Lawton Church, but within a few months, he was had up and convicted 
and hanged at Carla. Oof. This sad story sort of added to the attraction of Buttermere in that, you know, here was this beautiful, innocent girl seduced by this bad lot. Uh, and that somehow sort of said something about, you know, the beautiful innocence of, of the Lake District and, and so on. So it, it sort of it tied in with, with early ideas of the Lake District. Anyway, Mary, eventually she married a farmer from Colbeck and she moved away and lived the rest of her life out of the limelight. But somehow the story of the beauty of Buttermere, she became known, became so much fixed to Buttermere itself that uh, it became part of the place. And of course, it's been retold many times, fairly recently, uh, by Melvin Bragg, for example. It's become part of the story of Buttermere. But whereas in Ranadale, it was purely fictional, in Buttermere, this is a genuine bit of history. Absolutely. Now, the, the setting, well, I go to Buttermere, uh, like many visitors, on a hot day like today, we may call in and get an ice cream. But that links in with the agricultural connection of the whole place. Yes, the name. I mean, people often, I think, wonder, what does what does Buttermere mean? Why is it called Buttermere, Butter Lake? Well, I mean, the first element actually is thought by place name scholars to be butter, meaning you know, butter, um, which seems to suggest some sort of a dairying tradition and the keeping of livestock. And in a way, that is important because, of course, the Lake District is a farming landscape and it's a farming landscape centred on the breeding of livestock. And those livestock have changed over the centuries in terms of which animals are, are, are most important. Nowadays, of course, it's sheep. I think when we get to the head of the valley, probably we'll talk more about sheep when we get up to Gatescarth. But if you go back in time, cattle were as important, if not more important. And if you go really far back into the Norman period, it's quite likely that both pigs and goats were important. Uh, again, the place names tell us this. Just above Buttermere, above Hasness, there's Goat Crag. There are places called Swinside and Swindale. There's a Swinside just behind Buttermere. There's another Swinside down near Lawton. There are the Grisdales, as in Grisdale Pike upon Quinlatter. Grise being the old Norse word for a young pig, Swin being the word for a pig. And it seems very likely that at an early date, pigs and goats were part of the agricultural mix. Pigs perhaps particularly being important because they are woodland animals. They'd be put out to graze in woodland in the autumn. Uh, and when there was more woodland around, there would almost certainly be more pigs. So I think you can sort of think of a phasing, you know, pigs and goats at an early date, they get replaced by cattle and sheep. The cattle, very important in the, in the Middle Ages and the Tudor and Stuart periods, the cattle gradually become less important and the sheep become more important. And then there are a whole series of other names that are found up on the fells, which refer to wild animals and specifically to the predators, which would attack the domesticated animals, particularly, of course, the young sheep. So obviously the fox is a main one, and all the Todd gills and Todd crags refer to foxes. But there are one or two places that refer to wolves. Not many, because probably the wolves have disappeared from Lake Street at quite an early date. But names like Ulfa, for example, Wolf Hill. There are wildcats, and there are martins, and there are ravens, and there are eagles. All of those are referred to in the place names, and all of those are animals that would have been important to stock-rearing farming communities because they were a threat to their livestock. Well, who doesn't just love this journey along the shores of Buttermere? We have this amazing view across the lake to High Crag, Scarth Gap and Haystacks and Fleetwith Pike. Wow, what a fell. But what it draws you naturally to 
the modern settlement or homestead of Gatesgarth itself with lots of contemporary farm buildings and so forth. But this farm, Gatesgarth, is far more significant and has a, a rich history that I'm sure many visitors who call in there today would be amazed about. Can you give us a little bit of a feel for that, Angus? Yes, I mean, Gatesgarth is probably the best historically documented farm in the Lake District. We're able to trace its history right back about 750 years, which is quite amazing. And that's largely through one of those accidents of history uh, in that a set of account rolls for the farm survive in the National Archives at Kew from the 1270s, 80s, 90s, way back, well before the Black Death, way back in the reign of Edward I. It's one of those accidents of history because the farm belonged to uh, a widowed countess and during the period of her widowhood, the records were kept. When she died, the farm and the whole estate went into crown hands and it stayed in crown hands for about 30 years before then being granted out. But the rolls stayed in the Tower of London and they're still there. So they're wonderful, wonderful sorts. And what they show is that 750 years ago, Gatesgarth wasn't a sheep farm, but a cattle farm. It was what's known as a vaccary. The animals were kept by cutting hay from the fields at the head of the lake there, those flat fields at the head of the lake. They provided the hay to keep the stock over the winter. And in the summer, they were put up onto the fell, uh, particularly onto that great big bank of fellside called Gatesgarth Side, which runs up on the back of Robinson. That was the, the summer pasture. There's a great wall, I noticed, high up there as well, up by Hackney Holes. Yes, that wall, which is actually in 19th century as far as we see it today. But if you go up there, there are places where you can see a great big bank and ditch. Uh, which is probably part of the original medieval boundary, because that, that whole area of Gatesgarth side was known as the park or the wood of Gatesgarth, and that's where the animals grazed across the summer months. Right. So we have a glimpse of the farm 700-odd years ago. And when we pick it up in the 16th century, there are three farms at Gatesgarth. And by the 18th century, this is reduced to two, and they're two of the larger sheep farms in the Lake District. And Gatesgarth's particular interest lies in the 19th century, when the farmers who were running the place then were a family called Nelson. There were two Edward Nelsons, old Ned and young Ned Nelson. And they were among the leading breeders of the Hertwick sheep. So Gatesgarth is one of a handful of farms which really created the modern Herdwicks. Oh. As if we go back to look at the, the history of the Herdwicks, they essentially evolve out of what were the native sheep of the western side of the Lake District. If you ask people where the, the Herdwicks come from, people have said, ah, oh, they were brought by the Vikings. Or they came ashore after a Spanish Armada ship was wrecked on the West Cumberland coast. Oh. Or it was a Danish East Indiaman wrecked on the Cumberland coast. But all those stories suggest a link with the West, a link with the West Cumberland coast. Right. And in fact, recent genetic studies suggest that there may actually be something in this idea of Viking origins, because the Herdwick sheep have particular genetic characteristics which link them to sheep found in places like Finland and Iceland. Mm. Um, they're a very, very early breed of sheep, that's clear. Now, the name Herdwick is interesting as well, because it doesn't actually refer to the sheep. I mean, the name Herdwick simply means stock farm. It's the same name that you get as place name in other parts of England, Hardwick. Think of Bess of Hardwick, Hardwick Hall in, in Nottinghamshire, isn't it? Yes. Um, Hardwick is simply Herdwick, and it simply means a stock farm. Rather like Shippen doesn't mean where you melt the cow, it's where the sheep were kept. That's right. It's a similar sort of transference of a word. Yes. Now, in the 17th century, or in fact in the 16th century, the, the very earliest reference to Herdwicks is to some of the farms that belong to Furness Abbey. 
uh, in the Furness Fells area and right at the head of Eskdale, and they're referred to as Herdwicks. By the 1680s, we get references to Herdwicks um, and the Herdwick of Sheep, specifically, down at Moncaster, again, southwestern side of the Lake District. Yes. Um, and so it seems that the name gets transferred from these sort of probably fairly large um, lordly farms belonging to Lords of the Manor, which had large stocks of sheep. Uh, the sheep that were on these Herdwicks become known as the Herdwicks. We know from the, some of the early illustrations of Herdwicks from the sort of 1790s that the sheep then were very different from the modern breed. And the modern breed, as I say, is largely a product of selective breeding by a group of farmers in the Lake District from the 1840s onwards. And this included the Nelsons at Gatescarth. It's said that in the middle mid-Victorian period, the Nelsons at Gatescarth had 150 rams, 150 tops, wow. which they let out in the breeding season. So probably virtually every single Herdwick flock in the Lake District has some Gatescarth blood in it. Wow. And gradually, that group of farmers, including the Nelsons, they decide what makes a good Herdwick. And basically, the sheep that we know today that are so iconic as part of the Lake District scene are a result of that selective breeding by this small group of farmers, including the Nelsons at Gatescarth. What I find fascinating, Angus, is the way the romantics, like the Rawnses and the Wordsworths or whatever, picked up on shepherding as being something to exalt, and yet it was a very hard working life and didn't have a lot of glamour to it. But we carry it forward, and it still impacts on, but it's a World Heritage Site because of the cultural landscape. So the shepherd lies right at the centre of what we perceive as being the Lake District. Yes, I think an area like the Lake District, you need almost to make it other, don't you? You need to give it an otherness, whether that otherness is, you know, rain and tempests and crags and all this sort of stuff. But part of the otherness that the early visitors saw was the nature of the local farming society. Uh, and they endowed, as they did in other upland areas as well, it's in Wales to a certain extent and in the Highlands, they endowed the farming communities in these upland areas with what you might call sort of ideas of mountain purity. Somehow the, the mountains gave a, a moral purity to these communities. And they were seen as very long-standing, very traditional communities that had been there for, for many centuries. They were unchanging communities. And this gave a sort of feel for the Lake District Shepherd as being separate and other. And it's picked up in a big way about 100 years after the discovery of Lake District by um, Canon Rawnsley. Hardwick Rawnsley from Crossway to Keswick, who took this to, to extremes, really, that, that suggested that we could, we could learn something from the pure life of the Lake District Shepherds. The Good Shepherds. The Good Shepherds. And, I mean, you think of that postcard that you can still pick up in the Lake District today of Isaac Cookson from Bampton with a sheep over his shoulders. I don't know if you know that. It's a photograph taken in the 1930s. Yeah, um, and that's very much the idea of the Good Shepherd. So it all sort of gets tangled up. In a way, the, the Lake Street Farmers are put on a pedestal. And that sort of sense of them being separate and different continues, I think, today. And partly, of course, it's grounded in a certain amount of reality because hill farming is a very different life, very different life from modern life. Things like sharing common land, organising the grazing resources on common land. Uh, these are part of the hill farming way of life that really doesn't have a parallel in most other aspects of society. So hill farmers are still seen as, I think, slightly separate. And I think that's partly what attracts people to, for example, uh, James Rebank's work and his yes. because they give a, an insight into what is seen as a very different way of life. The purity of the shepherd was exalted, but later and more recently, you might say, it became more politicised. 
Yes, I mean, I think you could see the roots of this back in the early part of the last century when the shepherding way of life was seen as being under threat. And you begin to get people buying up Lake Street Hill farms, particularly Herdwick farms, in order to try to keep the shepherding tradition going. Beatrix Potter was famous for this, of course. She brought up several farms, including Troutbeck Park. Trevelyan bought up Gatesgarth. The Lake District Farm Estates Company, which was an offshoot of the Friends of the Lake District, brought up several farms. And the aim was to try to maintain not just the, the farms themselves to protect them from things like afforestation and so on, but actually to maintain the shepherding way of life. So that sense that this was something that was worth preserving continues really well through into the 20th century. Well, when you're in the farmyard at Gatescarth, one instinctively is lured by the magic of haystacks and up to your right, Burtness Coombe with the amazing crags of uh, Eagle Crag up there. One tends to not realise that actually Gatescarth Farm was not just an amazing place for agriculture, but it was actually rather like the ODG in Great Langdale and Wasdale Head Inn. It was the centre of climbing at one point, we tend to forget, when you think about the takeoff of climbing in the Lake District in the 1880s, you know, how did people get to Wasdell Head? Well, you came by train, obviously, in the Victorian period, and you would come to Keswick. And to get from Keswick to Wasdell Head, you would go either right the way at Borrowdale and over Stihead and down, or you would come over to Gatescarth, over Scarf Gap, over Black Sail, around that way. And from the, certainly by the 1850s, Gatesgarth has become a point on that journey to Wasdell Head. And the Nelsons are acting as guides, taking people up over the fells, getting the climbers over to Wasdell Head. And they were the farmers at Gatesgarth. The, the Nelsons as the farmers at Gatesgarth. By the, around about 1900, the uh, rock climbing fraternity begins to discover the crags around Buttermere and Haystacks, the ones you've just been talking about, uh, and starts developing rock climbs in that area. And that's partly, I think, because there is a local pioneer of rock climbing, uh, who lived down the valley at Lawton, John Wilson Robinson. Uh, he said he used to set off at three in the morning, get himself up to the top of Great Gable by 10 to meet a professor on top of Great Gable. Again, he would come through Gatesgarth, up over Scarf Gap, Pillar Rock in Ennerdale was his great place. The sort of connection that I had with this was through uh, my grandfather's elder brother, Dick Hall, who was part of that early climbing fraternity. He was a grocer in Cockermouth. He didn't enjoy being a grocer. He was really an outdoor man. And right from the Edwardian period, before the First World War, he would go out onto the fells as often as he could. And he was uh, full of enthusiasm, full of boyish enthusiasm, I think. I never knew him because he died before I was born. But the picture you get is of someone who was really enthusiastic and, and uh, would do things like, for instance, he built himself a coracle and paddled all the way down Buttermere and Crummock and down the Doe. Um, so he, he was quite a character. And Gatesgarth was the, sort of his second home. He would go there, you know, originally by bicycle and then by motorbike and then eventually by car, park at Gatesgarth. Uh, he knew the Nelsons well. And typically they would go, uh, he and other members of the family and friends, they'd go off and climb up the fells, 
they'd come back to Gatesgarth for a ham and egg tea, <laughs> uh, with Mrs. Nelson being the, the hostess. Um, and so that Gatesgarth became quite a centre for the rock climbing and fell walking community in the 1910s, 20s uh, and 30s. And that continued through really into the 50s and 60s uh, with Annie Nelson, their daughter, who I remember as a, when I was a, a lad, um, who lived at Gatesgarth Cottage and used to provide teas for the climbing fraternity. And there are stories of people turning up at Annie's cottage, pungent rock climbers, you know, having spent a day on the fells, coming in with filthy fingernails and so on, and sodden uh, from, from being <laughs> on the crags all day, uh, and coming and having tea with Annie Nelson at Gatesgarth. So Gatesgarth becomes another hub for the climbing fraternity. And of course, this generation of climbers, they brought their own vocabulary and names to the landscape. Can you pinpoint one or two of these? Yes, there's a, there's a whole range of new names because obviously the climbers, having developed a, a literally a fingertip knowledge of the crags, wanted to give names in order to discuss different climbs with each other. And so they, they start giving names. And if you just look at some of the names, they're really rather strange, like Toreador Gully, Sheepbone Buttress, Barn Door Climb, Oxford and Cambridge. And they, I think, paint a picture of a, the climbing fraternity, which at that time was dominated by a sort of university elite. And these are names which have nothing to do with the farming names of the fells and the, of the farms. They're coined in a modern English. We don't really know much about how most of them originated. There are one or two hints. High Stack Gill or Stack Gill, we know how that was named. The, the climbers were coming back down in the moonlight, down to Gatesgarth, having climbed that for the first time. They were trying to think of a suitable name for it. And they said, well, let's try and link it back to the Scandinavian, to the Norse naming. Why don't we call it after the Norse word Stacken, the, the crag? Um, and they think about High Stack Gill, and then they eventually settle on Stack Gill. So there is a, you know, did deliberate thinking here, deliberate naming, creating a completely new layer of naming in the landscape. Fascinating. Even Wainwright invented sheepbone rake to react to the sheepbone buttress. So every generation plays with names. Wainwright's axes were scattered on innominate tarn. I'm intrigued by the name innominate tarn. Why should a tarn be called that? Yes. I mean, thinking of names in the landscape, which of course is what my book was all about, innominate tarn is a wonderful one because it's a, a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It means the tarn with no name. Yeah, that is its name. <laughs> well, I discovered when looking through uh, my great uncle Dick Hall's diaries, uh, the root of the name innominate tarn. Uh, apparently, he, he wrote, in fact, there's a letter there in his diary back from uh, Bartholomew, the map maker in Edinburgh. And he'd written to Bartholomew and said, he suggested that this tarn, which was not named on the early maps, uh, should be called innominate tarn. And his reason for suggesting this was that he'd uh, once been talking to the Nelson family down at Gatesgarth, and he'd asked Alan Nelson, who was the, the son of young Ned, what the tarn up there on the top of Haystacks was called. And Alan Nelson had said to him, it has Nyam, has no name. Uh, and so Dick Hall started calling it to himself and then his friends, he called it Innominate Tarn. And it was on the basis of that that he then wrote to Bartholomew's, I think it was about 1933, uh, and ever since it's appeared on the maps as Innominate Tarn. Well, we've reached quite a summation at Innominate Tarn with Wainwright and so on. It's the rounding off in many senses of the contemporary view of the Lake District. Country Stride has this terrible habit 
of uh, giving our guests a little moment to shine at the end as well. And we call it the quickfire questions. And so we toss in a few little ideas and see what you feel. Um, what is your first, very first Lake District memory, Angus? Well, that was when I was three. Uh, we were living in the south end of the Malverns, and we came on holiday to a, a house in Kentmere that belonged to my great uncle and aunt. So that's my very earliest memory of the Lake District. How fabulous. Well, Kentmere is a gorgeous valley, and um, Beatrix Potter was up that way, and oh, all sorts of people were. Um, so which is your favourite lake? It would have to be a toss-up because they're very different uh, between Crummock and Derwent Water. I mean, Crummock, because that's my home lake, as it were. It's the lake I've known ever since I was a child. But Derwent Water, with lots of happy memories of taking our children there and uh, paddling a canoe around and uh, Manistee and things. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Hmm. There, I think I would have to say Wordsworth, simply for the depth and the range of his writing. I'm a great admirer of Wainwright's. But uh, the depth and, and breadth of Wordsworth's poetry is yes. the best bits of his poetry. What is your favourite view? Oh, well, I think I would have to say there. It's from the foot of uh, Crummock. When you walk through Lanthard Woods from the car park at the foot of Lanthard Woods up to near the Salmon Ladder at the foot of Crummock, and you're looking up to the valley, Melbrook on your right, Ranazel Knots on your left, Haystacks in the background on a clear day, Great Gable uh, up behind. Uh, have you a favourite pub? Well, as I hardly drink, uh, I haven't really, but uh, Kirkstall Inn in, in Lowswater, let us say, because I have had many a happy time there. That is a lovely setting, isn't it? Um, what would be your most perfect Lakeland day? I've had lots of lovely Lakeland days. I think it would be to drive up the valley we've been talking about. Um, and probably, actually, yes, either to go up Grasmoor either round the way we went up Ranadale and up round the back onto the top of Grassmoor there, or to go up Hobcarton from Lancet Green, go up and up on the top of Whiteside and up onto Hobcarton there. Ah, oh, magic. Absolutely wonderful. Um, your Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? In terms of writing, I think I would go with Dudley Hoyes, who wrote a little book called Beneath Scorfell. Um, which is a, a beautiful evocation of life in Estelle. Lovely. That's a new one to me. So when the time actually comes and a few friends gather to remember you at a place that means something very special to you, where in Cumbria, or more precisely the Lake District, would that be? Well, it would have to be somewhere in that valley, in the Crummock Valley. Um, I think it would probably have to be on the flanks of Melbrek, uh, where if you walk up from Low Park through Flasswood onto the brow where you suddenly get the view over the lake and up to Buttermere. I spent um, an autumn living at Low Park, um, had many happy walks through there. And it was also the autumn after I met my wife, but before we were married and she used to come over at weekends. So we have lots of happy memories. Of, uh, of that area. So I think if we weren't able to be buried here where we live, um, I think we both said that we would like our ashes to be scattered up there. Oh, marvellous. Absolutely idyllic. Well, I've greatly enjoyed our time together. I hope we get another chance. Oh, thank you. And it's been a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's a shame not to be able to do it on such a beautiful day as it is today. It would be lovely to be out there in the, in the field, but it's nice to be able to do it virtually. Oh, well, when lockdown's over, we'll be out together with you. 
Well, we can't get to Buttermir in person at the moment, but we did the next best thing and lovely to learn so much more about these places that, that we love. A couple of things that I learned today, Mark. Innominate Tarn and the naming of that. Lovely little anecdote there. Uh, but also how important Gatesgarth was and has been to the establishment of the Herdwick breed. And I thought it was absolutely amazing the fact that the records of the farm go back so far and that it was actually a vaccary, a cattle ranch. Mm. Uh, and if you look on the north side of the valley, you can realize these great swathe uh, enclosures there. They're cattle uh, enclosures, not sheep enclosures. Yeah, very interesting, which is very much what the book's about, isn't it? It's about interpreting the landscape uh, to take you deeper into history. Absolutely fascinating. So we'll mention and and recommend the book. Um, I've got a copy of it, and it's fascinating. The Language of the Landscape, Angus Winchester, uh, and it's available from Handstand Press, run by Liz Nuttall up there in lovely Dentdale. Of course, we went there with Colin Speakman, didn't we, Mark? We did, and we visited the brewery at Coogill. Um, we learnt a great deal about that, and then at the enclosures and the way the valley was farmed and all that, it was a, a magical journey. Any journey that goes to a brewery is a good journey. <laughs> uh, as with last time, we won't promise what's going to happen on our next episode because things are changing so fast all the time, aren't they? But we are committed to broadcasting from Cumbria and the Lakes every fortnight now and we will bring you a, a fascinating guest who loves this area as much as we do but for now and from myself here down in Naddle and from you Mark up in Geltsdale we're saying goodbye thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time it's been wonderful <laughs>